Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with ex-Roadrunner Head of Sales, Michael Cantor. Big apologies on this one because it was recorded something like November last year and I've only just got around to editing it. Sorry, Michael. Uh, Michael has a very storied career in the music industry and he uh, obviously shares that in this conversation. He's now in the wonderful world of real estate, so towards the end we start banging on about houses and things like that. Anyway, let's get into it. One, two, fuck shit up. As I say, I, I edited this meticulously and I obviously I sent a bunch of questions, but really those kind of like, that's kind of where my headspace is when I think of yourself. And I've, I spoke to John, uh, not John, Jim Salaby, who was like head of sales. I don't know if he was your immediate predecessor or, he was yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got this idea of like the sales function, um, but it mostly links in with Red and IRD. Uh, and 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 obviously what would become like the IDJ fun uh, functionality and things like that. So there's always like knowledge gaps for me to to fill. But the questions kind of are more pertinent to, well, how can we? What what? How is my mind wandering throughout the chronology of your career? And then we can just sort of go off and left and right and sure. do whatever you want, really. Sure. Um, but straight out of the gate, though, I like to ask like, what's your, your gut feeling and your gut? The words that fly into your head when you think about Roadrunner, because obviously it, it will have been a while since you last worked there, and and. I think from speaking to other people, everyone seems to remember it with a lot of reverence, especially considering where Roadrunner is and where they are now. So what's your take on this? Yeah, no, it was to me just an amazing time, amazing label that was, you know, one of the few branded labels. Um, and I was so thrilled and happy to be part of it. Mm. You know, it was just, you know, it was a, a time and a place that just, you know, had the credibility of the streets and then, to have you know multi-platinum records mm. uh, whether it's a nickelback on the pop side but to have slipknot achieve the success that slipknot did was just amazing so for me to be part of it um was just really special yeah yeah it's always interesting to hear um the participants reflections on it because my role in the uk is the uk has a very special bond with roadrunner uk because something about the way they administered like the brand was it was unavoidable like every time you went to a gig the street team was always outside and obviously the roster itself was really strong and it was kind of, it, it, that's kind of how i got into this because i was like there's got to be something there this can't have been by accident you know what i mean so it's, right. it's interesting how it's it's all sort of like got to this point where everyone's sort of got this weird relationship with that little red logo and everyone seems to remember it with a lot of reverence and no one's done a book or a documentary on it, which is feels like a knowledge gap to me, a substantial one. No, it's, it's amazing. A, yeah. I mean, I was, I was very lucky because I came from Big Beat, right? Big Beat slash Atlantic. Mm. Big Beat was kind of what Roadrunner was a little bit, but on the hip hop and R&B side. Right. Big Beat was very branded, right? It had... It had the streets like uh, and they were like, oh, what's the next big beat release? What's the next single? You know, successes were a Robin S. Show Me Love. That was such a big record. Craze the party. And then we signed Junior Mafia, which mm -hmm. consisted of Notorious B.I.G. Right. So he was blowing up, um, you know, on, on Def Jam. And, and then we had Little Kim came out of that. So I was really lucky because I knew, you know, how much a branded label. It just helps especially if you're starting from scratch mm -hmm. you know, to really build, build a base because, you know, you have that brand already and the streets are like, okay, what's the next thing coming out in Roadrunner? 
oh, it's a big beat artist. So I was very lucky to come from one branded situation right into another. I think it's interesting. I think one thing that should, could be quite valuable is using the term branded label. That's not something I've heard before. I understand the meaning, but if we were to try and assign a threshold to what makes a branded label, what would you say it is? Is it just the cultural significance or is it is there mechanics involved? Wait, hold on. Let me just back up. I'm sorry. Notorious B.I.G. wasn't on Def Jam. Actually, I think he was on uh, P. Diddy's label. Right. Okay. Right, right. So I don't want to, I want to clear that out. Sorry, everybody. Wait a second. Um, um, I've, I've watched Defiant Ones recently. What was it? East Coast was. What was Biggie's label? Not oh, Biggie, sorry. Um, P. Diddy's well, it label. Through, it was through Clive. Is a uh, big, big. Da- um, what is it? It was through Clive Davis's Bad Boy. He was on Bad Boy. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Our fucking our street credibility just fucking went down. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. Our, yeah, let's define a branded label. Let's just sort of like spitball what we what we what we mean by that because i think it's meaningful really, I, I just think you know perception from the street mm. you know um that really you know to me in, in a nutshell it's like uh the label you know the, the kids know the consumers know something coming out on roadrunner is going to be credible and it's going to be good yeah. You know, what level it achieves, you know, no one knows, but it is going to be a really good start and a good foundation. So yeah. it's, really, it's really perception. And especially when you're trying to break new artists, um, you know, listen, if Slipknot came out on Roadrunner, right? <clears throat> if it would have come out on Atlantic, I don't know. Would it have had the same success? Who mm. knows, right? Cream rises to the top. You don't know. But on Slipknot, for example, we gave it such a base, such credibility, right? I mean, we, we were typically on Roadrunner, like for baby bands, let's call it baby bands. We would ship yep. maybe anywhere from like eight to 12,000, which is actually pretty good, right? And really with not much of a story, just it's kind of like, hey, we're going to rock radio, uh, college radio. We're just, mm-hmm. we're doing promos. We're getting it to the DJs. With Slipknot, not, not only did we have the brand, of the label behind it, but we had that buzz and that credibility. We shipped 30,000, which with no radio, no nothing. And that was just, you know, all the stars aligned, credible label, you know, credible act. And it was just- Fast 99. (laughs) The whole thing. Yeah, I think think that's kind of the point of this in the whole project. It's sort of going, we've got, we understand the branded label being the perception. We understand there's this sort of culture. There's this kind of walled garden. Products coming out of this walled garden, we, as in consumers, understand something viable is going on. But this is where vocabulary fails because when you start asking the hows and the whys, you don't really know. And I, I just think it's it's something that's beyond they just succeeded and had good bands. There's something else underpinning that as well, which creates that kind of perception. Um, and again, I think that's just where vocabulary fails us. I've been trying to answer that. I don't know, like concisely for two years, but I think you can't. But you can't answer that in a sentence. You have to go. There's a Dutch guy. There's Monty. There's right. other like fifteen right. black t-shirt clad people doing different things, and it just created a, a, a soup. And there's yeah, no so branded. Yeah, let's say branded is the perception right from the street. But yeah, the mechanics behind it. Obviously, you had this talented group of people that are just, you know, live, breathe, sleep, you know, Roadrunner and the bands and the culture, you mm. know? Um, I mean, I was like a little bit of an outsider, no tats, no piercings, but but I, I got it, you know what mm. I mean? Was I stronger really with probably, you know, hip hop and R&B? Yes, um, 
but I was a sales guy and I got it. So, you know, you give me a story, you, you know, you, you, you give me the tools and then I'm going to help, you know, get it to that next level. And mm -hmm. so you had really such talented people, you know, um, some who you've spoken to, some who you're, you're going to speak to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people have gone on to, you know, huge success, you know, huge success. Yeah, the cross-pollination since 2012 is crazy. Crazy just what people are doing now. But let's go, yeah. let's deal this chronologically then. So how did you get into music? Because I found conflicting, I found conflicting accounts. One was you had a history in distribution and another one saying you had your own label or something like that. Yeah, so college days, you know, back in the 80s, um, I did start a rap label, right? It was, called, it was called Def City Records. Ah, okay. So a little bit of a bite off of Jeff Def Jam, but it was called Def City Records. Right. And, um, you know, I started putting out hip hop records. I didn't know what I was doing. I had a little bit of money. Um, and um, yeah, it's funny, like this, this one group that comes to mind, MC Sugar Ray and Stranger D. Um, and, you know, actually, so with, so with that record in particular, right? So... Um, again, it was just strictly vinyl, right? Going yep. to record stores and learning the whole roles, roles of everything. So with that record, Eddie O'Loughlin at Next Plateau, who had a very successful hip hop label, right? Mm -hmm. Salt and Pepper, um, just, you know, Kid and Play, you know, Sybil, everybody. Roadrunner alumni as well. He, he got wind of my rap record buzzing, right? Mm -hmm. So he wanted to meet with me. So I meet with him, you know, with, with the group, and um, he's like, great, I want to do a singles deal with you. I think he offered us maybe like $2,500, right? Mm -hmm. And the group was thrilled, okay? And I was thrilled. I'm like, this is great. We're going to the next level. And you're so, still in college. Um, yep, yep, still in college. So a couple days later, as the music industry would happen, I get a call from Eddie O or maybe his assistant would have mm -hmm. in there saying, you know what? Um, the record's starting to die out. We're no longer going to give you a deal, right? Now, as a young college student, you know, and I'm dealing with, you know, you know, this, this hip-hop artist, like, this is their life. Like, this is like, wait a minute, we had a deal. All of a sudden, we don't have a deal. So um, they, they were definitely not happy. I was not happy. Um, my attorney, he didn't know what to say. So I was like, listen, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to go to Next Plateau and I want to get, you know, no appointment. I, I want to go see Eddie O'Loughlin. So I went there, no appointment, just waited to see him. Luckily enough, he saw me mm -hmm. and I said, Eddie, please, like, you got to do this record. He goes, it's kind of over, this and that. Um, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the record, no advance. Just, just put it out, you know? So he goes, you know, you remind me of myself when I was your age. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, I'll, 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 I'll do the record. Of course, I was like, can we do the advance? He was like, no. He goes, but I'll, I'll pick up the record. I'll have Mark, Mark the 45 King do a remix. Mark the 45 mm -hmm. King, if you look him up, he's like, was the hottest producer. He did Hard Knock Life for Jay-Z, like no the hottest producer. So we will, we'll put a new remix on the record and we'll put it out. So, you know, that was fantastic. I mean, the record, whatever, it was on Next Plateau. It sold a little bit. They didn't pick up the option. Um, but now I had a good relationship with Next Plateau and uh, put out a few records. And, you know, I didn't have the funding for Def City and I didn't really know what I was doing. So sure. it kind of it kind of went on the, on, on the wayside, right? Mm -hmm. um, so during that time also, this is going to ruin my credibility, I was also a freestyle dance artist. Sweet. Okay. 
Um, I was signed to Micmac Records, which was the hottest freestyle label back in the day. It had you know Johnny O and Cynthia, Two Without Hats. Like if you lived in the New York area or Florida, you heard about Micmac, and they were also a branded label. Like anything came coming out on Micmac, you got to pick it up. You got to pick it up. You got to pick it up. Mm-hmm. So um, I went under the name Mikey. Right. And then I also had another deal on another label called Metropolitan under Michael Christopher. So I was just trying to like, you know, I, wanted the mics. Artist. I just wanted to make it any way I, I could. Sure. So ar- around this time, um, I was also I wanted to make it in the music business if I couldn't do it as an artist or whatever. So um, my brother, Alan, who's 10 years older than me, he, he had worked for Warner Home Video, part of the mm-hmm. Warner system. And he's like, listen, if you want to get in. You know, you got to just meet people. And he introduced me to his friends, Mike Carden and Nick Maria, who were heads of sales for Atlantic Records. Right. So he said, always stay in touch with these guys. And I bonded with Mike Carden, who was, you know, second in charge of Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So um, Mike got me the job at Pearl Music. Pearl Music was a one stop in Brooklyn. Right? right. And putting out, you know, you know, like like a lot of hip hop uh you know, dance, you know, no real we, we have, have we hit the 90s yet? <clears throat> we are end of the 80s. Like we're, right. we're really kind of upper, upper, upper 80s. Okay. Maybe, maybe 80, 87, 80. No, I'm sorry. We were probably, yeah, 89, 90. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, 89, 90. So, um, so anyway, it was, it was so great. Here's another disappointment. I, uh, I'm, I'm at Pearl One Stop. I know my record is coming out on Micmac. I'm like, this is awesome, right? And um, the rec- I'm in it. We, we didn't get it in stock. I mean, I, I was in charge of buying too. I was doing sales and buying. I, I must have ordered like 500, which was a lot. Yeah, told yeah. The owner. And I'm like, listen, where's this record? She goes, you know, well, let me call Marvin Schlachter, the owner of Micmac. And she comes back to me. She goes, you know, they, they really are doing a very light release on it. Actually, it's just like it's supposed to be just a promo. And I'm like, oh, but 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 we can bring it in. Like they weren't even going to press it up. And this is when I really <laughs> this is when I really learned because what was happening was I was signed to these producers where Micmac was doing all their recordings in their studio. So they just threw my producers a bone and said, yeah, we'll sign your kid, whatever. It was never supposed to come out, whatever. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> So I'm probably giving you too much detail. No, that's cool. I love so it. I did, so I did uh, work to Pearl, Pearl One Stop, you know, doing mainly sales, you know, calling up, you know, record stores, whatever. I did that for a couple of years. And, um, you know, there were some really good people there that I met through, you know, um, Jim Mahoney, who he'll come up later in my story. He, he ended up at Roadrunner in a certain capacity. Yep. Um, Mitch Dudley, who... Um, ended up at Red Distribution. So it's interesting along the way how people, you know, elevate and and come along. Mm. So anyway, so um, I am, uh, you know, I get a call from Mike Carden from Atlantic and he's like, hey, Craig Kalman just got a deal. He he owns Big Beat Records. He just got a deal and Atlantic is buying half of his label and um, he needs a head of sales. I'm recommending you for it. Wow. Awesome. This is great. Right. Right. So I go in, I meet Craig, you know, he's my age, whatever. Um, While I'm there, I find out that one of his releases is MC Sugar Ray and Stranger D, right? The record that I had put out. So that was like a bonding thing. 
right? right. Although they, they might have changed their name at the time, whatever. So anyway, it's like, you know, we had a great conversation and he's like, listen, you don't have national experience, but I like you and you come well, you know, you, you recommended from top guys, whatever, and he, and he gave me the job, right? So in hindsight, right, why, why do you think he hired me? He was no dummy. When the heads of Atlantic sales who are gonna oversee big beat sales mm -hmm. put their guy in there, it's such a win-win, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that at the time. So it doesn't matter to me. I was in there and it was a great situation. And then that's yeah, where yeah. Big Beat just really just again, like a like a roadrunner, but on the hip hop and RB side, just yeah. you know, like we really had hit after hit after hit. Mm -hmm. uh, and um Big Beat, so it was, you know, again, I'll get to the roadrunner structure. So at Big Beat, you know, I was tapped into uh, we had we had distribution and I was tapped into the Atlantic regionals. Right. Right. So I know you had previous conversations with Kathy and Austin and, you know, the structure really is the same. So there were four regionals. I was tapping mm -hmm. into those regionals. Now, Big B was a little guy in a big ship. Right. So they paid attention to us when we had the big records and the big releases. So it was my job to really make sure that big, big B releases stood out. And mm -hmm. it was just a great experience. I was there for five years mm -hmm. and, you know, traveled all over, met all the buyers, you know, um, you know, from, um, you know, the hot topic to warehouse at Violet Brown, who is, you know, the buyer responsible for so many big hip hop releases. Yep. So I made so many great relationships at distribution, at retail within Atlantic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now what happens is Atlantic um, buys the rest of Big Beat, right? Right. And they want to kind of merge Big Beat into Atlantic. And um, this is know, so, so profane. Yeah. So now I would be part of the Atlantic situation. Now, right. During this time, as a side note, I'm, I'm a frustrated A&R person, right? Because in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be A&R, right? Sure. And Craig was great because he would let me sign things. I, you know, he's like, hey, I found something buzzing, sign it, you know, which was amazing. He was like, bring me something big. I go to NARM one year, National mm -hmm. Association of Retail Merchants, whatever, and I see Master P and his son, Romeo. I don't know if you know yeah. Master P. Master P is like, you know, he was huge. He was on No Limit Records, um, sold millions of records, right? You'll yeah. have to look at Master P. Anyway, he, um, so I brought Master P to Craig, you know, this <clears throat> is it, this is it, you know, and um, the deal did not happen for some reason. I don't know why. And mm -hmm. then Master P did a deal with No Limit and the rest is history. You can look up his history, millions and millions of records, like just, yeah huge success. So anyway, you know, with Atlantic, you know, I said to Craig, I said, listen, I'll stay at Atlantic, but I really, I want to incorporate some A&R, you know, I still, I want to be able to sign bands. Like I, that is my passion. I'll do the sales thing. I love it, but I really want that. And that really wasn't kind of what, you know, um, you know, like they, 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 the big structure wanted. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, so then um, I get a call from Eddie O'Loughlin. Eddie O'Loughlin says, Hey, Michael, you know, I have a deal. My next Plateau Records has a deal with Roadrunner Records. I don't know. Did, did you know this? Yeah, I, I, and he was brought in for okay. a while. Yeah, so, it was a year, so I think. Case was smart. He's like, hey, let's, whatever works. You know, it's like, so he did a deal with Eddie O'Loughlin and next Plateau Records. Now, had, now, it, we are, now we're sort of early to mid-90s, aren't we? 
Yes, they, that was probably like, uh, I don't know when they did the deal, mm-hmm. right? But, but Eddie probably called me, I, I guess it was 96, because I started at Roadrunner at 97, right? So yeah. it, was, it was around that. So, so Eddie O'Loughlin called me, he knew I was doing my thing. And he goes, hey, Michael, I'm having trouble with this one, with this one group on the West Coast. We're getting airplay. And um, we're not seeing sound scans. So, you know, I have a good relationship with Eddie over the years and I'll help anybody out. I'm like, no problem. Let me make some calls because I'm still at, you know, I'm still at Big B. We're still hot and, you know, buyers are taking my calls. And so Mm -hmm. I called up Violet Brown because she was buying for the warehouse chain, you know, and I said, Violet, you know, next plateau, the singles happening with this group, you know, how's it doing for you? She goes, I don't even, ha- I don't even carry this record. I don't, it was a cassette. He goes, I don't, I'm not carrying the cassette single. I'm like, Oh, all right. No wonder. Right. Mm-hmm. So I called up Eddie O'Loughlin and said, Hey, your, your problem is, is the biggest chain in what in the West coast who, who you're getting airplay, whatever. They're not carrying it. Well, he was livid, right. Yep. Um, at, at the time, the head of sales for Roadrunner was Peter Mullen. Okay. okay. Very nice. I didn't know him that well, whatever. I'm not blaming mm-hmm. anything on him. Right. But, mm-hmm. but the bottom line is, so the Eddie O'Loughlin, he must have brought it to Case's attention and said, and must have been like, look, you know, I'm not getting any support on my next plateau releases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what can we do? This and that. I love this guy, Michael Cantor. I don't know what your situation is with the sales, whatever, but, you know, would you consider? That, that's how I, what I think went down, whatever. Because the next thing you know, Eddie calls me and he's like, um, Hey, would you sit down with Case Wessels because I'd love to, you know, recommend you for like a head of sales because they're 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 changing their position. Right. So I guess behind the scenes, actually, I think on his own, Peter Mullen was taking a job somewhere else. I think on his own, and I guess they were looking maybe for a replacement. So right. it was right around the, it was right around the time where you know it was just perfect timing because I had to decide: am I going to go to to Atlantic and do sales there, or do I take this opportunity? And I met, is the A and R functionality that you're trying to adopt to Atlantic is that fizzling out or something, or is that because? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like that. That well. So what had happened was I <clears throat> basically, you know, I liked what Case was saying. Um, I knew Roadrunner. I knew of Roadrunner. I really yeah, didn't yeah. know the bands i didn't know all the bands this was like 97 and is mm-hmm. 96 um but i was like you know what i know hip-hop and r&b like i want to know this rock stuff like this mm-hmm. would be also great to know you know yeah. and um and it's a great record i mean a great record label and i know what cases you know trying to achieve and this sounds like a great opportunity mm. so i i accepted the gig and um I, you know i went back to tell craig whatever and craig's like listen um, I'm trying to get this situation together where, you know, if you stay, I'll put you at ADA distribution, right. Which was another distribution company. And you'll be like the Alan Becker, which you interviewed. You'll be like the Alan Becker. You'll be like the Alan Becker of ADA, which means, you know, you'll bring in hip hop labels. You'll bring in groups or rock labels. Like you'll be that arm, um, for, for Warner's. People don't know that the world revolves around Alan Becker. People don't know this. So people need to know this. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, bring it in. And tell me if I'm giving you too much detail on all this No, I love this. This is like, it's dangerous territory because we could go off for hours, which I fucking love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I love it. I love this too because like I want my kids to know like the story and I I want this to last forever. So I'll I'll send you a copy. It's cool. All right. Anyway, um, so... Oh, so anyway, I was like, great, because I like that situation. I was like, you know what? If you could pull that together, I'm in, because that's 
that's my passion. That's it, whatever. So mm-hmm. he couldn't. I had this offer on the table. I already accepted it with Roadrunner. And I'm just like, you know what? I just, I, I, I think I want to change anyway. So, um, you know, I, I changed it nice. with the Roadrunner. So let's, let's, let's pause there because there's a few things I want to run through. And I'm going to try and deal with it chronologically. Um, I think I've, I've touched on this a few times. Sound scan, massive fucking deal. On the Roadrunner side, SoundScan's impact was people couldn't fake anymore. There was no way you could fudge the numbers. There were other ways you could do it. Like you could have a promo CD with a purchase that could get scanned for like $2. So you'd scan lows, but you'd make no revenue and things like that. But what was that like for Atlantic? Was there any kind of, was it all just, I'm trying to understand because I've, I've done everything from, from a Roadrunner perspective for two years. I'm trying to think, oh, what's the hip hop experience of SoundScan? Is it the same? Is it just like CDs are coming out? They're cheaper than cassettes. This is a boom period. Oh, I'm a mistake. Well, we, we knew, so with the hip hop and Big B, whatever, like we, we knew um, the weighted scan stores. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the indies, a lot of the indies had different, you know, weight. So, so meaning there were, you know, because if there weren't a lot of ch- uh, stores or chains in that area, then an independent record store would carry more weight, meaning for every record that was scanned, yeah, it might count as five units, or it might count. Oh as my god! I'm gonna lower the desk. This is brilliant, right? So you're telling me that based on based on like <laughs> like regional impact and basically local markets there were some stores which would just count as five because they're they're so important to book for but fuck nowhere yeah i didn't yeah. know this yeah so you know if you were <laughs> you smart, made me sit down if you were a smart salesperson like you kind of knew who these stores were you know and um you know they we we treated them very well right, right. um and and we got that was important as as our base to really who decides that though who decides like ah bloody circuit city mini or whatever is going to be i mean listen i'm not going to blame anybody but myself right and we're not talking about the circuit cities or the music lands yeah this is is like the you know this is you know the 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 independence right and tim's uh, records yeah yeah you know, we, you know, again, we, we, we needed a base, we needed scans, anything that, that would really, you know, help us. But, you know? but when I'm not asking you to like pull the rug and on this corrupt system from the early 90s, but I, I who would decide like this has more value because the implications of sound scan were massive because it gave grunge viability. You know, there's, there's a whole yeah. thing that happens in this little window of time which completely changes yeah. the course of how the press and the consumer would interact with music. So I'm like, I'm blown away by this idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so we're just on it. It's just you know, n- not a higher up or anything. I mean, obviously, it's like right. you know, it's part of the plan. It's part of the. It's just part of the plan. It's just kind of, you know, con- you know, common common knowledge. Like we just, we, if we need to help out and and really mm-hmm. get those scans, you know, um, I guess you know, it's kind of gerrymandering for for consumer retail music. I guess it's kind of like. Eh. It's democracy for the flyover states as well, isn't it? Because that's where you're not going to see the bigger numbers presumably because that's not where the cultural hubs are yeah 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 you know it was just uh it, listen it was a way to help out you know it was just yeah. uh you know right it, okay and it worked and it worked and you know listen we supported indie retail right so yeah. uh, 
you know, if, if we had to send him a couple, a few extra records, you know, mm. um, you know, it just, it, it, it worked, you know, I think this bleeds into like, a little bit, it wasn't massive corruption, you know what I'm no, saying? No, 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 no. I'm sure it wasn't, it was just, but it, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's just something that wasn't available before. Like I'm, one thing I was, I was putting this in a roadrunner context. One thing I heard was Doug Keogh's Friday night routine. It wasn't go down to, what is it? The old bar or whatever it's called. He'd go down to IRD. He'd go down to Alan Becker's with a fucking clipboard and match up their reports to what they had in stock. So he'd uh-huh. be doing it all manually. And so yeah, SoundScan yeah, comes in and yeah. he doesn't need to do that anymore. It just changes yeah. the whole game. So yeah. it's just interesting when there's a d- democratization of reporting. I just like, I like the idea yeah. of that kind of innovation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. listen, honestly, like on the Roadrunner side, I don't recall us really messing with that. Um, yeah, you'd, yeah. Have to, you'd have to go back to Austin and ask him that because he was dealing with more of the indie retails and stuff like that. I think it was a different the, game then as well. It was yeah. a different game. And also we, we on the hip hop side in R&B, like we were dealing with a lot of singles, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So it was really a way of helping us get more radio. Right. Because yeah. we were dealing with singles. Roadrunner was an album game, so we didn't really... It wasn't any of that really going on, you know? Right. Okay. Okay. Now I'm going to ask a very difficult question because this, I think this is important as well. Rock and metal are album oriented. I mean, we, we could have like a conversation about like this rise of the EP that's happened in the last sort of five-ish years. What are the margins on a single versus a an album? I mean, you know, it's, it's an album game, right? That's why... Um, Listen, I, I don't recall us really at Roadrunner. We wouldn't put out, you know, singles, whatever. But the margins mm. were, you know, we had we had cassette singles, you know, which uh, maybe retail would would sell for a buck ninety nine, and we we would mm. sell it to retail for you know sixty nine cents, you know, yeah. or or a twelve inch, you know, they would sell for I don't know three ninety nine. We'd sell it to them for you know a buck 25 or a buck 50 mm-hmm. and then, you know, albums, you know, that's where the margins are, are really great, you know, because um, depending on, you know, which genre, you know, we're, we're talking about, but, mm-hmm. you know, we, we could make five or $6, you know what I mean? As opposed to $1 or $2, you know, I think it depends uh, on the demographic as well. And that's yeah. a demographic, the audience itself, because like the metal audience and the rock audience is at least has a perception to be a return audience. Yeah. So at least like as a label, you're guaranteeing yourself a certain bit of income. Whereas like rap, rap and hip hop is more of a, um, yeah. it's, and it's, that's why, you know, and, that, and that's why if you're talking digital or physical, like if you're talking digital, right. So, you know, now, now the digital single comes out on iTunes, right. And um, they're only paying the labels like a 30%, you know, you know, 30% or whatever. Mm. And the, you know, albums in general, right? Used to only have one or two singles on it, right? So now yeah. all of a sudden it's like, they're not buying the Ingler, they're not downloading or buying the album, they're just getting the one or two singles, right? Yeah, That's yeah. why it's pretty interesting, like Kid Rock on, this, on, the, on the rock side, he was one of the last holdouts. Mm-hmm. Like he was, you know what? I'm not putting my stuff up digitally, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think Taylor Swift, same thing. They yeah. were both holdouts, holdouts. It's like, no way. I'm not putting my stuff up digitally, forcing people to buy the albums, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, um, so, you know, album, better margin. That's how record companies make their money. I love this shit. Hey, oh, before fun. I forget, I got to tell you a little side note, which I forgot, which you'll love. 
I'm working at Pearl Music. I'm, I'm producing some hip hop, whatever. My, my friend Mitch Dudley, who I'm working with, and he's a, he's a hip hop artist as well. Mm. And um, he's like, come on, let's, let's go. Um, he, he had like a big, he had a couple big hits back in the day. So I'm like, Mitch, like, let's, let's do more hits with you, whatever. He goes, all right, great. I found a studio in Brooklyn. It's only like 20 bucks an hour. I'm like, great. So we go in the studio. It's this white dude with long hair. He's got like a pit bull or like a really big dog, like in the basement that are like, we got to, we're like scared of this dog. We, we, he's got like a studio, whatever. And, you know, we record the album and this and that. And we saw different things on the wall, whatever. So it's funny because that was Josh Silver from Typo Negative, <laughs> right? I mean, I had yeah. no concept who Typo Negative was or whatever, but here we are, right? No clue, but several years later, I'm selling Typo Negative. And actually, like, we were in Josh's home in his studio, yeah. like, recording this hip-hop. Yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> That's crazy. I love it. Now, another thing I want to touch on after – Sounds kind of seedy and shit. What was your first impression of Case? This enigmatic sort of uh, Dutch. Just, it's very serious, you know, very sharp. Mm. Um, you know, just smart, smart guy asking the right questions. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. How can we win? You know, what's our game plan? How can you help us? Um, what do we need to do? Interesting. So, so let me try and I'm going to pitch you what my research says is the is where Case is at in terms of his intentions with Roadrunner at this period. So we're in 97. Um, we've had our early 90s, which is thrash and death metal. Successful, but there's a ceiling to that market. We move out and in Europe, we've got some massive success in GABA. Um, and we're trying to move a bit further out uh, into sort of the grunge and rock world. Just trying to diversify the palette a lot. So 97, I don't know if it's the year, but Roadrunner as, a, as an indie function starts moving into like a major structure. So Derek Shulman's brought in, Dave Lonka's brought in, you're brought in from the major um, uh, side of life. <clears throat> in Europe, Jimmy Devlin's in, in the UK office and all stuff. The structure completely changes because they want to take it more seriously and they want to take this mission of like, it wasn't case didn't want to be a metal label he wanted to be a label a really good label and he wanted to build it as a, as a major label almost um so when he asks questions like what's the game plan and what do we need to do to win can you remember what your response was well well first of all before i came in on the sales side of things roadrunner was already set up to succeed right i was actually shocked and surprised because here I am coming from Big Beat, Big Beat, we had regionals. Roadrunner, Big Beat didn't have their own regionals. We tapped into Atlantic's regionals. Mm -hmm. Roadrunner had their own regionals. And I'm just like, wow, you got, you know, the structure was there. So you had, you know, the head of sales, you had, you know, um, you know, second in command dealing with the street and analytics and everything else, right? At the time it was Bob Johnson, right? Mm -hmm. Who's a very successful manager with Corey Brennan now. Um, mm -hmm. Mark, Mark, um, Bob Johnson is like the Mark Shapiro, the Austin Stevens, like that, that role. And then we had four regionals. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is amazing. Um, so really, you know, for, from my end, I didn't make any changes. Yes. Maybe I, I brought new blood in and new relationships. Um, and you know, we, we, we just really needed the product, you know? Right. So, um, 
you know, to so to, to, to really answer that, like we, we were really already set up, you know, mm-hmm. but that was just Case's mindset, like just, you know, he wasn't like, Michael, what do we need, need to do to win or this and that or whatever. It, yeah, it was yeah. just, that, that was really just more of his mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we were already set up in sales. Now he's got this major label guy, you know, like I'm going to set the world on fire, whatever. Um, and Jonas was amazing. He was the, mm-hmm. I guess, the GM at the time. Um, yep. And Jonas, you know, he previously was a sales guy. So he, we got each other, right? And then I guess when Case brought in Dave Lanco, that was really the, the, the one that, all right, so he obviously must want to go. To get to that next level, he was thinking, all right, we got to get radio. You know, we got to get this person. And, and that was Lanco, right? And, right. Then, and then taking a step further, and I, don't, I can't remember what years Lanco came in, but it was the same year, the next year. And when Derek Shulman came in, um, but of course, Derek Shulman with his, you know, credibility and his signings back, you know, was like, all right, this is what we need. I'm sure Case like, this is what we need to get to the next level. Now we mm-hmm. just need the signings. What did Derek bring to the table then? I don't know a lot about Derek. I, you know, I think he really brought credibility um, and relationships that he's had, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, he's been in, obviously a superstar himself. He's been in the business for so long. He had a ton of relationships and the credibility, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what he did day to day, right? But just having his presence meant a lot to the label. Yeah. And, and I'm sure to the community in the world, it's like, oh, they brought Derek Shulman in. All right. You know, what's, Road, what's Roadrunner doing next? So Because his background was Electra, wasn't it? Yes. Bon Jovi, yeah, Pantera. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Was it, what was Electra Pantera? Anyway, yeah, yeah. Sure. So what was the main, when you, let's say it's like week one, week two, what are you identifying as like, oh, this isn't like Big Beat? Was there anything that was like the core differences of... Uh, I mean, I, I came in, we were, at, we were at Prince Street at the time, and like the sales staff, we were all in one office pretty much. You know, I had Bob Johnson there, uh, Mike... Um, Tom Ty was the New York regional. And, um, you know, I honestly, I, I was a little nervous, right? Because I didn't know, I really didn't know the product, right? It, it helped me. Listen, I'm good in sales. I always thought I was good in sales with Big B. Like I, I'm like a pop and R&B hip hop guy. Like, mm-hmm. and I think I know hits, but more in like the pop hip hop, you know? So like, and, you know, it helps to sell what you're really passionate about. Right. Yeah. So I come in, I don't know if the first record was Machine Head or Fear Factory, one, one of those, whatever. And I'm a little nervous because I don't know this style of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the setup. I'm like, oh, my God, what is the staff thinking? Because, <laughs> you know, um, oh, big label guy coming in. But I got to tell you, everybody, they were very my, my team, my sales team and, and the label, very respectful to me. Very, you know, they, they were like, you know here, you know, this, this is what we normally do. We're here to support you. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, um, then for me, it was just learning a new distribution company. Right. Okay. Because I was dealing on, on the big beat side. Um, I was dealing with, I think both ADA, which they're in their independent arm Mm -hmm. and then, um, we, the, the major label arm. So I knew distribution. It was just learning another distribution company, which I was psyched about because I'm like, all right, I want to know everything. I want to know all distribution companies, how everything works. So mm-hmm. I had really c- good credibility coming in, especially from the distribution arm, because, um, ooh, my cancer from Atlanta, you know? Um, 
so so right away I got their respect, which was great. And then, yep. um, you know, a lot of support from from my my staff. And uh, then it's just a matter of what was great because at the time we were a big fish in um, you know a smaller pond with red distribution. So yep. they really were hot on on Roadrunner. Like oh god, yeah. You know, whether, whether it was a low level band or a, a bigger band, you know, it was just like, they took us very serious. We laid out the goals, you know, we worked on the game plan mm -hmm. and we, we were off to the races. So we, we, we were all good. You know, um, you know what I traveled, you know, the first month, whatever, I met all the regionals, um, stopped at all the red, uh, the red distribution, you know, offices and we, we were just off to the races, mm -hmm. you know? And it was funny, um, and I, you know, during that time, like before Nickelback hit, whatever, I, I don't know what period. So, you, you know, you had Wind Up Records, right? Wind Up Records had Creed. Yeah. Right? Creed was a huge superstar band. And yeah. I think, I don't know if they had Three Doors Down or somebody had Three Doors Down. And mm -hmm. um, so, like, th that's why, like, before Nickelback broke, you know, you had those big, big bands. And I remember Jonas, you know, coming to me and saying, man, why not us? Like this was, I think it was even before Nickelback was signed. It's like, why can't we get one like that? Like, why not us? You know? So, um, yeah, that, that was like, you know, the beginning, beginning stages. I came in 97, you know, we did our rock releases. It was great. Mm -hmm. uh, I think 98, maybe that's when, you know, Slipknot, you know, first came out. I, I was, I was going to ask you, obviously this is something you will, will eventually learn because you're, you're now in with the troops, but, from someone who has been intimate with the hip hop side and the pop side, and then come over to the rock side, when obviously everything's sort of built on buzz, is there a difference between a rock buzz and a pop buzz? Or is it kind of the same vibe? It's kind of the same vibe. Yeah. You know, you just, you know, you, you, you feel it, your regionals feel it. Mm. You feel it from the streets, right? Mm. So Big, Big B, you know, was really like, it was a, a street label, had that street cred. Roadrunner, mm. same thing. Mm. Street, had that street cred, you know? Right. Granted, even though we didn't have big radio records, you know, we had college radio, maybe active rock on some of the ones, but, mm. uh, you know, the buzz is kind of kind of the same. It's universal. Yeah. I guess it's the universe. I bet, I bet it's different for each artist. Not not like a universal, oh, this is this is popping. It popped last week with this band, it pops next week with the other one, yeah. Speaking to the fact that you didn't know the product at this point, Slipknot are signed in 98, so this is within 12 months, perhaps, of you starting there. What's your initial impression? Because if you think, I don't really know the product in 97, in 98, the product that is given to you is fucking nine dudes in masks throwing up everywhere and spreading rumors about crows and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and again... Whether I whether I knew of the product or not, right? I was still full on. You know, we're still doing our thing. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, sure. And in selling it, right, we had such a great story with each record, so it was yeah. easy to kind of sell distribution and and to sell retail. So Slipknot comes along, and I'm like, wow, this is. I knew right away it was something different, and I'm just mm -hmm. like, you know, and I'm I'm not saying I'm like this huge heavy metal fan, whatever, but I was like. I was like, this, you just knew it was universal. It was like, they're different. The music is different. Like this, this, I felt it was going to be big. And we saw them play the side stage of OzFest, um, you know, that year. And mm -hmm. they had such a buzz. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, more people than one of the main stages. Like you just felt it. You knew 
Um, and that's how we set it up. And like I said, to, to ship 30,000 as opposed to like eight to 12 as a baby band, you just knew this was going to happen. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And, um, you know, this was a band, like it was worth a trip going to Minneapolis to meet with Best Buy. Like this was, it was setting up just so well, right? The yep. marketing, everything. So I knew right away, I was excited. The whole label was excited. As a consumer, like you go into school, uh, this is, I'm sure I'm my age, you go into school and they'd be like, ah, oh, this fucking guy has thrown up on each other. It's all, this, is how you, this is how you sort of like get the buzz. You, it's all like secondhand stories. It's all these rumors. That's kind of how it happened. They all wear masks. It's, no one knows who they are and all this sort of stuff. So when you're going out to professional business people and they've heard the same stuff, is there any kind of like, do you ever have to bridge any gaps there? Or do you just come out and straight and go, it's a buzz. Fuck the fact that you hear these rumors about them throwing up on stage or whatever the fuck is going to be. I've, and there was a catalog, there was a catalog of Slipknot rumors like in the early days before they, you realized they were just normal people. Um, but was there ever like any professional sort of like bridge building that you had to do to make sure that, all right, Best Buy should you know, invest in this brand on the basis that it's definitely going to sell? It was just, uh, listen, they, they were treated as a, you know, listen, there's uh, get bands get signed different levels of priority, yeah. um, you know, determined on buzz, you know, mm -hmm. what our expectations are. Slipknot, we all knew right away. Um, most of the buyers, um, you know, they, they knew the brand again. It's like, right. oh, it's another Roadrunner release. And yeah, but this is something different. Like this, mm -hmm. this is OzFest. This is, you know, they wear a mask. It's not a gimmick. Let the music mm -hmm. speak. Like this is going to be big. Mm -hmm. um, and it, listen, at the time, right, it's, you know, maybe the, the Walmart buyer was a little bit more corporate. The Target buyer was a little bit more corporate. But mm -hmm. we weren't selling any of our music to Walmart or Target at the time, right? Right. The Best Buy buyer, you know, they, m most of these buyers like had had a pulse on what was going on. Right, know? okay. And at the time, Best Buy was really into music and really into metal, mm -hmm. whether it was a lost leader for them to get people in the stores or not. Um, but they, you know, the the buyers really got it. You know, the mm -hmm. buyer in Hot Topic, like this was there, this was, you know, what, what what was going to get people inside mm -hmm. and um so it really was not difficult there was no there were no challenges at the time with slipknot right perfect i mean you know what the challenge the challenge was listen you ship 30 I, I forget what we scanned i don't know maybe it was five or six thousand which would have been great mm -hmm. uh, now it's like all right we gotta ship more out there let's get more out there you know or you know as a salesperson it's always like why didn't you ship more then? Or, you know, you know, so always, always the pressure, but Slipknot was just, you know, we all knew. What's the feeling on the, at the top level of the business then? Because Case had had successes like that. Scaled down in the seventies when he was part of the major label system, right? Was it, I mean, I've kind of got a blind spot for this period because you've got Slipknot and then you've got Nickelback and then you've got Silver Side Up, which is just Silver Side Up and Iowa coming out within two weeks of each other, which is just like, Ugh. and in my head, in my head, there must have been a, a point where they've just gone, this is not sustainable mentally. We can't really be thinking about this straight because it's too successful. There's, is there any point where it's just like people are losing their shit? Or do you think it was because of the system they'd put into place and the structure they put into place, everything was kind of managed not with an optimistic 
not with an overly optimistic um, view of things, but it, so they kept it realistic, even though it was like a runaway success. I, I do this thing where I fucking ramble because I'm trying to compete with my thoughts while I'm telling you, asking yeah, you a yeah. question. But you get yeah. my idea. This shit blows up. And in my head, again, I'm sat on the, over in my school going, oh, that's interesting. But if you're working it, you must go, fuck me. This is what we've been working for for 20 fucking years. It must be like, it must be some, it must be mad, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, leading up to the success, it was, you know, business as usual. This is what we're striving for. Everything yeah. is in place, right? Like all the tools are there. All the systems are there. We just need to feed it. And if we're lucky enough to get a band that clicks and we get a hit, that's a beautiful thing, mm. right? Once you get the hit, right, then all of a sudden, maybe the unrealistic expectations come <laughs> because it's yeah. like, all right, you ship. We sold two million on this Nickelback, or we shipped two million. We sold two million on this Slipknot. Well, you, we gotta ship five million, like because then, then it becomes like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know that that's when it goes to another level because mm. everybody's giddy. Everybody's like, whoa, we are amazing. We gotta ship more. We gotta ship more. Giddy's you know, the word. We we we, we gotta do the, the numbers. You know what I mean? It's all about the numbers. You know. What are we going to do next? Then it gets a little, a little crazy. You know what I mean? So, but it's such a, it was such a great ride. Like, especially leading up to those two bands was such mm -hmm. a great ride. And then afterwards was just amazing, you know, because Roadrunner became such a major label, you know, and attracting other bands. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, 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 you realize like, it's not that easy, right? We got, listen, there's a lot of luck involved. There's just all the stars aligned. You know, mm. just it's not one person, you know, I'd love to say, yeah, I came over and you see what happened. Derek Shulman came on board. See what happened. Yeah. It was just, um, you know, it was like Jonas's thing. Like, why not us? You know, so a little bit of everything. Look, the talent was there, the passion mm -hmm. and, you know, and we had the bands, we had the goods to do it. So amazing, amazing ride. It's interesting that the example you gave there, it's like everyone gets giddy, we should do 5 million next. Because when Bloody Kisses came out and October Rust was being um, recorded, written, whatever, um, apparently the band were told that they're expecting 6 million. But <laughs> yeah. it's just, again, but Bloody Kisses was the first goal. So it's kind of like that same kind of giddiness, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you tell me about the experience with IDJ? The run-up to the deal... Obviously, I'm, I'm privy to a lot of information, like the financial difficulty that the label was stressing under. And I'm also privy to the information that the sale happened and then like six months later, Silver Side Up happens. So, you know, there's a parallel universe out there where Roadrunner doesn't yeah. get sold at all, you know. Um, but what was your experience in this? Was, a, was there anxiety? Was it fairly, fairly simple on the day to day, I didn't like. I didn't really didn't know. I wasn't privy to like the what was going on, the talks or financial stress or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't privy to that. I just knew, you know, hey, um, now we're part of IDJ and and, and Universal, and um, again, I was thrilled, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was another distribution company for me to figure out, you know. More, All right, cool. More relationships, right? Yeah. So. So I was lucky enough, I, I always had good credibility that was important to me in my career, right? So, um, and there's only really like, there's a handful of buyers that I was really dealing with, you know, because mm -hmm. the roles between myself and, 
you know, Mark Shapiro or Austin at the time was I was really dealing with the major, um, you know, chains and one stops and, you know, my number two, whether it's Bob Johnson, Austin or, or, or um, Mark Shapiro, whatever, you know, was really dealing with the indies and, and those types of buyers. So we all had great relationships with those buyers, which are so key to us. So yep. now we just had to learn a new distribution system, which is just, just get the relationships with the salespeople mm -hmm. and make sure that they know Roadrunner is a priority, right? Right, that, okay. Because now, now we're a little fish mm -hmm. in a big pond, right? Yeah. So that's, that's where we all had to come into play. Luckily enough, like, you know, um, they knew Kathy Merritt on the West Coast. She had great credibility, you yeah. know. My guy, uh, Scott Stiglish in Minneapolis, they they knew him. So we had such great staff that, um, you know, they they knew, you know, they knew my people. It was just we had to figure out, you know, who the who the key players were at distribution and make sure that they were shipping the right amount. They knew our yep. marketing plan, our game plan. And, you know, we put pressure on them. Listen, we got to ship this, you know, um, this is our plan for Nickelback. This is our plan for Slipknot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, exciting time, just learning a new distribution company. Um, you know, so it was, it was, you know, it was good. It's interesting because uh, the sentiment when I talk about the universal acquisition is they're only really bothered about Slipknot. In terms of like the day-to-day, -day, you might go to like a quarterly sort of review with, with, with IDJ and Universal, but they're not bothering you on the day-to-day -day at all. You know, it's it's kind of the same same deal, but it's interesting how you you're saying there. But for you, it was the different distribution uh, infrastructure, and you had to refamiliarize yourself, and more importantly, you had to build those relationships. So you presumably had to go to Minneapolis and and, and or wherever and with a bottle of wine and just go, "I'm this guy now. You have to be okay with this because I'm going to be screaming down your neck when Volume Three or yeah. Iowa comes out yeah. or something like that." You know. Because I may have a different perspective from Dave Blanco. I didn't listen to his podcast with you. Mm -hmm. Now, he, because I think probably like getting these, a radio band like a Nickelback, I think maybe he was able to tap into maybe their staff, which was very, very important. I don't know. You, mm -hmm. you, you know, he could probably say, say something to that. Um, mm -hmm. But for the sales side of things, from my world, it was nothing but positivity. Universal, such a strong distributor. Yeah. And just tapping into you know, the ways of how they do business. And Leo Cohen, who was obviously there at the time, is kind of more your ilk, isn't he, from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he, he wanted to win. He was a hip-hop guy. He was thrilled with Roadrunner. I remember him coming into our offices when, when, the, when the deal was announced. You know, he wanted to win. And, um, you know, it's like all the stars aligned. It's just he, amazing, right? I mean, how well did he look? He put this deal together, and then all of a sudden... You got you got two of the biggest bands, you know. Um, you know, listen, we we can all take credit for it. Mm -hmm. uh, did he hear about Def City? I don't think he did. I don't think he, did. <laughs> he would have <go laughs> slapped you with a with um, some paperwork. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. So what? Um. I tell you about this then, because I asked Austin like, what what should I ask Michael tomorrow? And he said, oh, ask about Case coming up to your office window with a Sharpie. Yeah, I mean, I forget which Nickelback record it was, but yeah, he just comes by. I think he put like $4 million on on the wall when maybe, maybe we were at $2 million And, you know, he went, well, like I said, when when success started happening, mm. he, um, you know, put more more pressure, you know, on, on to do it, you know. 
but I'll, I'll touch upon some interesting things that, you know, um, would be of interest to you. Oh, totally. So, you know, Slipknot, so when, so when Nickelback really took off, mm. right, our, a really good partner was Walmart, right? Because we were, it's so funny, I was talking to the buyer this morning before, because I'm still really good friends with him. And, um, you know, it was, a, it, there were such great days, right? When Nickelback mm -hmm. Silver Side Up was, um, you know, was on fire, you know, Jonas would send me to, to Walmart, who bought records through Anderson Merch. Walmart didn't buy music directly. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I would come back with a five, 500,000 piece order like 500,000, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, the buyer I was talking to this morning about like sales and stuff like that. He, he said he must've bought about 8 million rec um, Nickelback records, right? So <laughs> this guy, Norman Hurd, he probably, I, I felt was the most underrated person in the music business. And, right. and also he had a really good ear too. So, you know, Walmart, Target, now all of a sudden, like they were like, selling a ton of Nickelback, right? So mm -hmm. it was it was really, really interesting. So now Slipknot, right? We want Slipknot to go to that next level with those kind of numbers. Nick, and listen, Slipknot Platinum Band, but how can we get them even bigger? Mm -hmm. So now it's like, well, let's have them do a clean version and get it into Walmart. <laughs> I'm like, you guys are crazy. How are we gonna clean up, you know, Slipknot? Cause Slip, um, Walmart would take in clean versions of some of the harder edged music. So we made a clean version of the Slipknot self-titled. I think we made a clean version of Iowa. And that's why I was, when I was talking to the buyer this morning, I was like, what, what kind of units did you sell in these clean versions? And, um, you know, he said combined, like they, he did like over 300,000 units, which is pretty, pretty amazing. How, you know? how do you tidy up people equal shit though? Uh, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, so so that's that's why like Nickelback really went beyond Slipknot in sales because it was just more you know it was just more accessible, sure, right? Because you know wh whether whether it was radio, but even in the stores, you know, yeah. because Walmart, you know, the, Walmart was a lot of great markets where Slipknot fans were, and they, they didn't want the clean version; they wanted the the dirty version, and they couldn't sure. buy it there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so was, yeah, that was interesting. Is that still the case? Will will Walmart will some of the big retailers still not buy any dirt stuff? I imagine like I imagine I, I can only picture like because there's a there's an ecosystem around Slipknot, and I was speaking to Felix Sebaceous from um, Blue Grape, and he was like, "We put fucking Slipknot T-shirts in Macy's, you know." Yeah. So there's a whole thing about this band, and I'm just thinking that they must have been. I'm not not necessarily them, but. At some point, one of those bigger brands must have relented and just gone, yeah, just fucking bring it in. But you got to bring in the jumpsuits as well, the prison jumpsuits as well. You know, it, it, there've got yeah. to be something that would relent, but apparently not. It's so interesting because, so there is a Nickelback record that's coming out now. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're through BMG. And my guy at Anderson Walmart, I was talking, I was like, so what are you bringing in on that? Um, and he's like, probably nine. So when, when I think of Nickelback, whatever, I'm like, oh, wow, like 90,000, whatever. He goes, no, 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 9,000 combined. I'm like, oh, okay. So they, they, they have like a, a CD, they have a special package CD, and then there's vinyl, right? Just to show right. you, I mean, it's, you know, how the, how the market has changed. Yeah, totally. Interesting. Um, moving forward then. 
Is there anything else about this period we should focus on? I haven't got any specific questions because this is like, this is where people usually jump in and go, let me tell you about the time I played golf with Leo or let me tell you about this bus we took to a Slipknot gig before recession where dollars actually were, were you could actually okay. buy things. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So let, let me let me just tell you. So a little bit I forgot. So on the roadrunner period when I come in, right? Yeah. There's next plateau, right? That was the main reason why I came in. And there were still releases coming out, whatever. And um next plateau wasn't having success. You know, they had their own little staff, mm-hmm. uh, they had their own little floor within our yep. building. I, I wasn't part of that, I was part of like Roadrunner, whatever. And I just remember, you know, Case was just like, you know, definitely concerned about, hey, they're not getting traction. Like, you know, are they going to have success? So that kind of fell to the wayside. Maybe Case sure. said, listen, it's not working out. Like mm-hmm. they, they ended their, you know, relationship. Um, I, you know, still had hip hop and R&B in my blood, right? And I knew of this label called Power Records that was hot you know, in, in down, down South. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Case, there's this urban hip hop label that I think could be good. Are you, do you still want to, you know, mess around in that, in that genre, whatever, mm-hmm. because I think you should meet up with this guy, Leroy McMahon. Yeah. Um, you know, he had a big record called the Dud Dip, right? The Dud Dip, like it was, you know, multi-platinum back in the day, whatever. So yeah. he meets with them, they hit it off. Mm-hmm. And he does this deal with them. And I'm like, this is great. You know, I, I went with him to Atlanta to do the deal, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. I was just thinking about it because I think like I'm riding, I don't know, we were riding to the airport or something. I, I might have even asked Case. I was like, so Case, you know, on this deal, you know, can I, do you think I can get any points on it? <laughs> You know, I was like, hey, I am kind of an A&R function, whatever. And Case, was, Case was like, I don't want to talk about that now. I'm like, all right. <laughs> That's never amazing. Happened. But anyway, so the, first, <laughs> so the first release from Power Records was called Jake the Flake. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So I was excited, right? Now it's like, all right, this is my genre. I know this. Um, you know, I, I, Case let me bring in a staff, this guy, Jim Mahoney, right? Because Jim Mahoney, who now runs Merlin, Merlin. right? Jim used to work at Profile, used to work at Pearl Music, mm-hmm. also the hip hop king, like, like marketing, like genius, right? So I'm like, Mahoney, I got this opportunity. You, sh- you should come to Roadrunner. You'll oversee the whole urban side of things. You could oversee right. power. You know, we could sign some urban records and maybe get this thing going. Case is great and you should do it. So they hired Jim, which was great. Mm-hmm. They loved him. Powers to be loved him. And then we're, we have this Jake the Flake record. You know, I, I traveled around to sell it. Yeah. Um, we're shipping 50,000 units. Like that's a lot. 50,000. And I'm like, oh, my God, we, we better, you know, because, like, again, it's my credibility from the big beat days. And, you know, and I know all the buyers. I'm like, it's still relatively money. early for you as well in Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, man, I think we sound scanned a thousand pieces the first week. Now, oh, no, that's horrible. Yeah, that is horrible to ship 50,000 units and to scan a thousand. Right. Because the head of power, like he said, all these things were happening, buzz, this, that, and the other thing. And 
in the end, nothing really was true. Nothing happened. And I was like embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, this is, I mean, I'm so happy they didn't like terminate me over that, whatever, because it was just like, well, we shipped a lot of units, but I know a lot are going to come back. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Jake the Flake was kind of, the, I think the death of power records. Maybe, maybe we put out maybe two or three more records in that yeah. ending. Um, and Jim Mahoney was amazing, um, but there wasn't a need for him. So he went on to do just more amazing things. And now yeah, he's yeah. running, um, you know, Merlin and we have, you know, laughs over it. Um, but other than that, during that period, just, you know, just the, you know, great time with the staff, great period. We're selling a ton of records and um, all good. On reflection, was that kind of reach into that territory? Was it silly? Was it misguided? Oh. No, no, because um, listen, ultimately it was Case's decision and, mm. You know, he was always into trying different things. And he's like, listen, you know what? Maybe, maybe it'll work. He yeah. wanted to win. He just, he wanted to win. And he was always into trying different things. Right. And um, I'm not sorry that I hooked him up with that relationship. Other, other than that, it was, you know, it was his decision. Yeah. And it could have been the biggest success. It didn't happen. It was mm-hmm. fine. Let's focus on what we do best. And that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, Monty wanted to know if, um, having an office next to him was annoying because <laughs> he just kept blasting out music obviously uh, no that was that was awesome that was like you know monty <laughs> was uh monty monty was awesome and I, I was thrilled to have him next door to me and yeah. uh you know, love love the guy <laughs> how do you feel about the um the warner acquisition then i know a similar question to the idj one but we, we kind of we're aware that the warner acquisition was kind of a different beast so Warner's was cool. Um, so you got to remember. So I started with Craig Kalman, right? Of course, yeah. Now Craig Kalman is like the man, like yeah. running the show, right? So in a way, I was happy to be back home. I didn't interact with him at all. You know, we mm. were you know, friends, whatever. But like, I was like, oh man, it's like you know. Part of me is like, I wonder how he he, he really thinks of me because I, I did leave that situation, right? Yeah. And um, but Warner's like I knew a lot of the people. It was easy for me because a lot of the people that I started with when I was at mm-hmm. Big Beat, like they were still there. So it was it was very easy for me. Sure. Um, and, and we had great product. So it was a you know, it was a good, it was just a very, very smooth, you know, transition, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um no, no, fair enough. Um, closing out then, how did you, how did your relationship with Rodrigo end? Did you leave? I, I don't know the details of this, but so um, we can cut wherever we want to cut. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it was announced that um, Warner had bought, you know, fully owned, you know, Roadrunner twenty ten, um, yeah, all this, and then. We kind of saw little by little, like they were, you know, they wanted to kind of merge and, um, you know, kind of have a limited staff or takes, you know, like, you know, they, they grab some of the staff. So mm-hmm. I kind of felt the writing was on the wall with me. Right. And um, probably the sure sign of it was like, you know, I was friends with Jonas, you know, like outside of work, we kids the same age, you know, still right. busy, whatever. But um, it's like the last two weeks, he didn't look at me or talk to me. <laughs> so 
it was like, oh man, I think he's breaking up with me. Like, this is bad, you know, like it was yeah. bad, you know, in hindsight and we talk every once in a while, whatever. And he's just like, you know, you know, he tells me, he goes, he, he, he knew it. Right. He just, he couldn't face me. Like he just, mm. you know, he, he felt, <laughs> he felt bad, but I was just like, oh no, he's not looking at me. He's not talking to me. I'm like, <laughs> this, this can't be good. Yeah. You know? Um, but um was this straight away was this like 2010 2011 time then yeah it was like 2010 2011 yeah yeah right so you didn't go out in what's been referred to as the red wedding no okay (laughs) the red wedding is april 2012 when this the axe drops and there's like all the international offices shut and um yeah i think i was like i I was 2011 yeah right okay you know all right uh, and um yeah it was you know d- definitely a bummer you know because um you know if, if there were different circumstances i really think we could all still be there today you know sure. what i mean because we had such a strong brand and um you know this is what happens with you know the major label world right they they want the roster they'll maybe cherry pick and um you know, there, there still is a Roadrunner label, I guess, today, right? I mean, I don't know. It's a, you know, maybe there's one or two people left. I mean, uh, I, thought, so. no, I think there's, I think there's a couple of people left. Mm-hmm. I think, but it's not, it's not like of like the Monty era. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like people who joined in like 20, uh, 2009 or something might still be there. It's that kind of yeah. Yeah. era. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like um, Monty, like Monty, like how Monty didn't survive is beyond me. You know what I mean? Because guys, a genius signs so many bands. I mean, just like, you know, that, that, that kind of blows my mind, you know, let's, let's play dirty for a second then. And then talk about the two, the two sort of like bigger runs of eyes. So Monty's in the post 2000s era, he's still like, he's still innovating like underground metal. Like he, he signs Trivium. He signs um um he signs a shit ton in, in this I don't know, who the fuck is he signing in, in in late in latter area roadrunner he signs loads but for some reason I'm drawing a blank bear with it. I've did a massive, massive Google Sheets on this going from 1980 all the way through to 2012. And it's literally about 300 uh, row three hundred um no, I'm wrong. It's 500 releases. So who is he signing? Like sort of 20. Yeah. So he's got like Wednesday 13. Of course, Devil Driver. He's doing all sorts. He didn't get. Did he? No, he wasn't El Nino. That was Mike Gitter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Coma. He didn't do Dresden Dolls. But my point being, you got all this underground uh, stuff that Monty's doing, but then like. Ron Berman's on the other side and he's kind of bringing in this more Americana sound, like this more sort of traditional rock sound with like Airborne and Blackstone Cherry and things like that. As a sales guy, what's, what was the, the better bet? Right. I, Cause in my head, I would have said, I would have thought like the Blackstone Cherries and Airborne's of the world would have performed really well. Yeah. It's less well, of a risk. Why, yeah. That's why we, you know, we got spoiled. Right. And, and I love Ron Berman and I yeah. love Monty. Um, but again, you know, Monty Connor, he was dealing more with the base, right? And I would yeah, think yeah. you want to deal, you want to sign, you want to still have those foundational artists that are going to deal with the brand. And, you know, along the way, you'll get a slipknot out of it, which is yeah. amazing. Ron Berman, 
struck gold with Nickelback, struck mm. gold, right? Mm. Then behind that, you know, we had some success with Theory of a Dead Man. And Theory, yes. Uh, you know, Blackstone Cherry, but we kind of all learned, or maybe Case learned or as a label, like a Nickelback comes along every once in a while, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And, and these other bands, you could dump a lot of money into radio and marketing and they may not happen, you know what I mean? So I think for longevity, I think Monty's the, you know, that that's the that's the bet, you know. I mean, I mean, listen, they they both didn't survive into after Roadburner. Oh they, no, they, no, they no. both have great they both have great jobs where they are now, the great yeah. gigs, but but they didn't survive into the Atlantic system. Um I it's you know it's interesting because maybe like even though we're trying to compare we're comparing apples and oranges, it's not it's not a fair thing. But if I'm thinking from a sales perspective, I would have gone, all right, Blast on Cherry is gonna sell more, but Monty might, Monty might be putting out three a year, three or four a year, and he might strike gold on one of them. And it's kind of like the risk tolerance is kind of different and the accessibility is really different. But the, the, the risk threshold is like up here for a major label, which is why neither of them survived. And it's yeah. all good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for, for if, you're, if you're a rock and roll label with, with credibility like Roadrunner was, that's kind of how you want to hedge your bets. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not betting on red and black. You're betting on the thirds on right. the table you know what i mean it's it, it's right. a it's right. a, a bit more right um it's kind of what case did though it was about cultivating the artists and sometimes you've got to take a bit of a a low risk high reward kind of no high risk high reward kind of approach with that especially yeah. as we enter that era when the money the deals weren't five thousand dollars advance anymore it was much much yeah, more yeah, dynamic yeah. Yeah. yeah but um how did you find the roadrunner united album which is kind of well-timed because they're re-releasing that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, that was great. Um, it, it was, I remember it was, it was a little bit harder to sell like on the mass level, you know yeah. what I mean? Because it was more like a concept album, you know what I mean? So, you know, the, the, the street accounts, you know, the Hot Topics, like they, they ate it up. But yeah. from like, from the Best Buy, or I remember like the bigger chains, it's kind of like, what's, ooh, it's, you know, how, how are we really going to sell it? You know what I mean? But it was, it was a great project. It was, you know, it was, it was fantastic. Did you go to the, um, the show? That yeah. Summer? Yeah. That was great. That was amazing. <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. That was a free bar. The Roadrunner, Roadrunner. And I'm sorry, you never experienced a Christmas party or some of these big events because Roadrunner, you know, did, did really great events, you know, and, and it was just really special time. Have you got any stories that you're um, you're willing to lay down your professional credibility on the line for to tell? Mm. Um, you know, not so much stories, but you know, let, let me think. But I'll just talk in general because uh, you know we didn't touch upon my staff, right? So, sure. what Mark Shapiro, you know, when he replaced Bob Johnson. Um, mm -hmm as you know, my number two, you know, street level marketing guy, mm -hmm. um, dealing with the indie accounts, you know, was just amazing. So my, you know, my, my staff, I was so lucky because, you know, listen, you're only as good as your team and they, they made me look amazing, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, with my memory loss or whatever, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like Mark was just amazing. And, um, you know, and I was really surprised when he he left, right? He was like, hey, listen, I'm I'm leaving. I think he went to Ferret, right? Um, I think so. Um, yeah. And then and, turned, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if he, he went into Good Fight, went into Good Fight, but. 
Yeah. Um, and then he's like, listen, but don't worry. Um, I think, you know, you should bring Austin Stevens in because Austin at the time was the Atlanta regional. Red. Amazing. He gets it, this and that. So we did several interviews and, um, and Austin was, you know, the perfect fit. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I was very just lucky that I had a great, a great staff to support me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just were so talented, you know, made, made me look good. And, <laughs> and again, we were lucky enough to have, you know, the records that we did. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I really have any, you know, crazy stories for you. The consummate professional. Or, or, that, or, or, or that I'd like to share. Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got so much like off the record stuff. It's a real shame. Like, like there's uh-huh. literally like hard drives full of shit that can't be seen anywhere. <laughs> Well, yeah, here's, here's one. I, um, so, you know, through my time at Roadrunner, I was always into, um, I, I've always been entrepreneurial, right? And I, I would always go into the recording studio. Mm-hmm. And this was around the time that Kids Bop was out. You know, you familiar with Kids Bop? Kids Bop is, is a, you know, on Razor and Tie, very successful label. They had basically kids sing hits. You know what I mean? Like there's, they would. There's a cyclical thing to this, but go for it. Yeah, so there's, they still come out today. You could find them on, you know, um, you know, iTunes or streaming. Kids will sing hits of today and yeah. parents buy them, right? So I had a great idea and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to bring these, my friends, kids in the studio and I'm going to do kids rapping the hits, mm-hmm. right? So I did, um, so I started a little label called Hip Kitty. Right? Hip Kitty, that's that awesome. Kitty, Hip Kitty, K I D D Y, wow. and um, I came up with a series called Kids Rapping the Hits, and they would do um, Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. In case doesn't know about this, while you're doing this no, on the no, side, no no, 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 this is this is this is no one knows about it. I can't. So the beautiful <laughs> thing, the beautiful thing is, you know you know, the, the buyer of, you know, Walmart, we're, we're like buds right now. And he's, um, you know, you know, I'm flying him to Nickelback shows. He's seeing Slipknot. He's buying hundreds of thousands of records. And I'm like, Norman, you know, my wife has this label called hip kitty, not Mm -hmm. me, my wife. And she's got this series called kids rapping the hits. You know, I think it would be great for Walmart. He goes, yeah, I think so too. So I hooked those two up together. So like he was buying thousands of CDs of like kids rapping the hits, you know. That's awesome. That's well good. So, um, you know, listen, it's, I, I never did anything that would, um, you know, that was a conflict of interest. Um, you know, we laugh about Carl. I saw your, um, your, your podcast with Carl Severson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he reminded me the story of um, Kill Switch, and I was like, "Oh yeah!" So we're, you know, I gave him advice on how to get it into top hot topic. Um, oh yeah! Oh shit! So yeah, yeah. I, I haven't talked to Carl in like years. I I I um, Facetime texted him yesterday. Yeah, I was like, Carl, thank you so much for your kind words on your podcast. I just want you to know, Doug Keo just contacted me. He wants to be reimbursed for the FedEx. <laughs> right because yeah. doug, doug was always all about the numbers and just yeah, yeah. you know doug was and you know doug and i don't know if you interviewed him yet he was the glue to the ship 
he mm. was a hundred percent the glue to the ship but anyway um Carl gave a big, he was like, dude, amazing. That's, that's, I, I love that, you know? Let, let me just, hang on, let me just close the loop on, on the, the um, kids bit. So kids singing the hits. Well, that's I did the... do kids singing the hits. I did kids rapping the hits and I did do kids singing the hits. <laughs> Wait, that's the first thing Roadrunner ever put out. Kids doing ABBA. Really? I'm not kidding. It's the first thing. You're the first kidding. thing it was it was Roadrunner Productions. It was like before Roadrunner Records, it was Roadrunner Productions, and you're dealing gadgets and shit like that. And one of the things was uh, language tapes, and they also did um, kids singing the hits. And luckily, someone uploaded this up onto YouTube, so you can see like the first. You are I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. If to be fair, that- it's Road it's Roadrunner Productions, and it's a sub label called Adam, which is A apostrophe D A M at Amsterdam. Um, but no, that's the first thing that Roadrunner put out. So I did do, I did do kids singing ABBA. So you, you closed the loop, man. Yeah, 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 <laughs> That's yeah. why I was like, did Case know? Because I thought the end of the story was going to be no, Case no, found no. out and he saw me. No, no. I'll send you a link. It's it's funny. Well, I say it's funny. It's 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 as it's as quaint as kids singing songs will be, but it's it's 1981 and it's ABBA in 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 Dutch. <laughs> uh-huh yeah that's, that's amazing that's amazing isn't it crazy yeah yeah that's fucking bonkers that's um I'll, I'll, my last question then is like your best day and your worst day at the label um and you're not you know, allowed I, to say i kind of i kind of think honestly um you know a couple different things right worst worst day when mark shapiro was like i'm leaving because i'm like oh right. my god he's my glue you know best day Austin Stevens comes in. I'm like, this is perfect. You know, perfect, <laughs> perfect replacement. He's my guy. I, I love that. You know, um, you know, worst couple weeks was when Jonas didn't talk to me. You know, um, best day is when I called Jonas from, um, from Texas to tell him, Amarillo, Texas, to tell him I have a five $500,000 Nickelback order. You know, <laughs> So those were, those were, you know, great, great and bad days, you know. Sweet. Sweet. Yeah. What have we missed? I don't think, I, I, um, you tell me. You know, just say, you know, when, when I left, I did, uh, you know, consulting for a while. So my credibility was still amazing, you know. So mm-hmm. I, um, um, I went out to consult Indigo Management, which, you know, Hail, Hailstorm, Shinedown. Wally, and, Wally Van Mitten uh, you know, Bill McGathy is, is just an amazing person who runs uh, Indigo Management. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I left, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, so I called up Derek Shulman. Derek Shulman was running, you know, uh, uh, Frontiers, right? He was, he was like the U.S. Armor Frontiers. He's like, I want, I want you to come over here and, and consult, do, do some consulting. Bill mm-hmm. McGathy was consulting. So, um, you know, I had, had a, you know, pretty good consulting gig happening. Um, yeah. Because, hey, it's Michael Cantor from Roadrunner Records. You know what I mean? He was behind <laughs> Slipknot and everything. And, and it was great. It was, it was a lot of fun, you know? Um, it's that thing. As soon as he joined Roadrunner, fucking everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was fun. And um, so I did different things like that. But it was funny because, you know, I became really like this rock guy, Right. Mm-hmm. And my personal taste is like, I like, you know, like, I love Nickelback, you know, mm-hmm. because 
of the songs, like Chad is an amazing songwriter. So mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the hits that he wrote were just amazing. Like, you know, just bigger than life. And um, so I kind of like, you know, pop radio, hip hop, that was like my thing. And all of a sudden I left Roadrunner and I'm this like metal rock guy, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I hate to say it, like it re I really didn't have it in my blood, except if they were, you know, if Shinedown had like a big hit or like, you know, if they, if they had hits, I loved it. But like the real hard stuff, whatever, I'm not really, I'm not, that's not my personal taste. And um, I kind of wanted to like enjoy what I was doing like post Roadrunner. Mm -hmm. So um, then I kind of stopped doing the consulting thing, whatever. Um, so now I'm still like my, my main gig now is real estate, you know, um, sell, sell houses, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not as fun as the music business, but, um, but I am managing a rap artist, which is funny. Right. It, it came about because I was going on a listing presentation and, and, and he, I told him I market houses, like I market records. And he's like, you got to listen to my son. He's a real great rapper. And I'm like, actually he is, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I'm still, so I'm, I'm doing that, which is still a lot of fun for me. Um, yeah. Actually, you know, I, I have um, a distribution deal with Ingroove. So anytime I, I want to release right. music, I could put it through Ingroove's. Um, so I still, the, the music is, will always be in my blood. It was such an amazing time. Um, but unfortunately, Roadrunner came to an end. <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. 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 Is Are you in a show house now? Or are I you in your in, house? I'm, I'm in my house. I'm just looking at the counter. I'm like, I can't see a kettle on there. This must be a show house. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, listen, I, I did do a, clean, a good cleanup for the podcast. <laughs> it's, like, it's sharp, but there's a massive fucking piano through there, so it can't be sharp. <laughs> unless the, unless the, couldn't, the, unless the owners couldn't get it out. <laughs>